Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Among the pantheon of maverick uh, strategists in the Republican Party, John Weaver rises to the top of the list. He was involved in John McCain's uh, kind of insurrection against the party establishment in the year 2000. Uh, worked with McCain again in 2007, leading up to his presidential campaign. He was involved in John Huntsman's campaign in 2012 for president. And this year he worked for uh, Governor John Kasich, who stood apart from a lot of the Republican field in his willingness to take on Donald Trump uh, and may be a big part of the discussion after the election if, as expected, uh, Hillary Clinton should win. Uh, John came by the Institute of Politics uh, the other day, and we had a chance to talk about uh, where we've been and where the Republican Party may be going. John Weaver, welcome, and welcome to the Institute of Politics. Good to have you. Um, Tell me about Texas. You're a Texan, uh, and you grew up in in Texas. How did you... uh, How'd you get from here to there, from uh, life in West Texas, was it? That's right. Uh, thanks, David. I'm honored to be here and big fan of the way you approach politics. Thank so you. Thanks for I having appreciate me. appreciate that. No, I, Likewise. I, Likewise. I grew up in a small town in West Texas. My parents were blue-collar working folks. My father's family picked cotton in Arkansas. They traveled the cotton-picking circuit in Arkansas and the panhandle of Texas. Um, my grandfather actually was from the Midwest, Ohio and Indiana, and was very well read. And growing up, he received every magazine you could get Newsweek time, mother Jones, human events, very curious, mother Jones, huh? everything. I mean, he was left, right, middle. And so what did he do? Was he, uh, he was, he was, he worked in the oil fields as well, but he was very curious intellectually. And, um, I would race home from school and we would watch the news underneath an apricot tree in the backyard about the Vietnam War and all the issues that were raging in our country back then. And so I wanted to be involved in politics, but I also love sports. Uh, I ended up going to Texas A&M to be a sports writer and I uh, had no money. So I took a job after writing a very favorable story about a college professor running for Congress, Phil Graham. Mm-hmm. He offered me... $200 a month and a place to live over his garage apartment. And fast forward to today, no sports riding, of course. And Yeah, that's and, too yeah, bad. Yeah, that would be fun. Exactly. Yeah. Could be here for the World Series. Exactly. And so I worked for, I worked for Phil. Uh, we had a very narrow Democratic primary for Congress where we got into the runoff by nine votes. We finished second, made the runoff by nine. 
votes. He, he was out, a Democrat. He was a Democrat, uh, a conservative Democrat, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, he was That was his first election to Congress. I worked on his second one. Out of college, I went straight into the Air Force for three years. And then he called me and asked me if I could find a way out, which I did, to serve in the uh, reserves for six years and was his political director when, when he ran for the U.S. Senate for John Tower's seat. I think you may remember that yes. he— that he uh, resigned from the party, switched parties. Yeah, well, we should. There's yeah. a little bit of history there, which right. is that he became the Democratic sponsor of uh, Ronald Reagan's tax cuts. That's right, and uh, that didn't sit well with a lot of a lot of Democrats. Right. No, he he was the bow weevil. I guess is the term that they used back yes. then. Uh-huh. Yes, that's exactly right, and helped uh, get President Reagan's uh, economic agenda passed through the Congress. Um, Senator Tower surprised everyone by announcing that he would not run again. Let me, before you get there, John, yes. let me ask you this about yourself. Uh, presumably your family were Democrats? They were, yes. Yeah. And did you consider yourself a Democrat? Um, I consider myself a Democrat, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a hard time with President Carter at the time, um, uh, but I did, yeah. Yeah, but as, as did most of Texas. Yes. I, look, I've lived through Texas seeing it go from – the, the bluest of blue states to purple to red, and now we're about to see it purple again. Yeah, I want to. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. So uh, Graham uh, decides to run for that Senate seat. Now he's a Republican. Now he's a Republican. As you said, he quit, regained his seat as a Republican. Right. Now he's a Republican and he runs for the Senate. That's right. And uh, Lloyd Doggett was the Democratic nominee. Who's still in Congress today. Still in Congress today. Populist, uh, Populist Democrat yeah. from, from the Austin area. And Ronald Reagan was at the top of the ticket in Texas. Was in a very 1984. Close race. 1984. Um, our mutual friends, Paul Begala and James Carville, were doing Doggett. Yes. And Mark McKinnon was working for Doggett. Yes. That's how long I've known those rascals. Um, <laughs> and... Um, so we won, obviously, and um, then I went to work for Bill Clements and his comeback bid for governor in '86 in Texas. In yeah. Texas, as his political director, we narrowly won. Um, then they asked me to run the state party, which for uh, and I was 25 years old, which I did, and then ran the Bush campaign against uh, Mike Dukakis in Texas, which was really the start of my. Career career if i could put my finger on any place because the bush family were they were so paranoid about lloyd benson remember dukakis picked benson the dukakis benson ticket went up 16 points ahead of us in texas yeah it was fool's gold we all knew it um but because uh president bush had lost to lloyd benson in a senate race in 1970 they were paranoid about that and so as a young man of 27 years old I was reporting to Secretary Baker, and I had a conference call once a week with Bob Mossbacker, Secretary Baker, et cetera. And so I didn't have to report through the normal channels. I got the extra attention. And because of that, and we won, um, my career got pushed fast. You, uh, but it's interesting because you came out of mostly a communications. Uh, yeah. You came at it from the communications. And it was the same way I got into right. campaign work. Uh, but running a campaign uh on the presidential level in a state is largely a tactical assignment so you needed to master the other elements of the campaign 
Well, like you, David, I mean, there's not a job in politics that I haven't done. And so, you know, you learn tactics and, and, um, and all of that. But at the end of the day, it is a communication business. Even the tactics are related to communicating, how you, how you group people together, how you organize, how you fundraise. It all gets back to communication. And I think people who come at it that, from that approach have a, have a leg up. And what did you learn from, uh, from Baker and, and that group? Um, discipline from Baker, as you can imagine. Yes. And um, I've heard from him periodically through the years. He's a, he's a tough character, smart guy think the world of him but uh discipline message discipline campaign discipline um what you begin the day implementing you finish make sure you've implemented it by the end of the day now i should ask you about the the intervening decade because uh in 2000 you ended up on the other side of the bush family uh, working for john mccain Yes. So what did you do in between? In between, I opened my own company, and um, I had a number of U.S. Senate races, um, senators. I, one time I had 10 senators as clients scattered around the country. Um, Doing general consulting? General consulting. Mm-hmm. Um, and they ranged from people like Trent Lott to Jeff Sessions, um, which is funny today, actually. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, and, but I, I got involved with Phil Graham's presidential campaign and Phil was not my first choice, but being a Texan and having gotten my career with Phil, um, I felt obligated to work for him. And John McCain was our national campaign chairman. And there was so much fear in our campaign staff and dealing with Senator McCain that it ended up being assigned to me as the only person to be the John McCain whisperer in the campaign. So I traveled with him. He and I were often on the losing arguments with Phil Graham on strategy and tactics because while Phil was a very good Texas politician and a very good Senate strategist, he was a terrible strategist for himself. Um, but I began. I became close to, to John. And after we lost and after the 96... What, what, what drew you to him? I mean, obviously you were thrown together, but what, what were the qualities that you saw in McCain that you liked? I, I, I liked his honor. I liked his frankness. I thought, quite frankly, following President Clinton, that somebody like John McCain would be a breath of fresh air, and that if we could win a primary, that he would win a general election going away. Um, and so I tried to get in to see him several times to get him to run for president, and his staff rebuffed me. They wouldn't allow me in to see Cause him. Because they didn't want him to run. Well, th- they didn't know who I was, some Yahoo from Texas who knew him from the Graham campaign, which was a disaster. They didn't want him to run because he had great committee assignments. They had a nice life. And finally, he called me out of the blue and said, how come I never hear from you? And I said, <laughs> well, I've been trying to see you all these months. And they finally granted me. a parable me- about life in Washington. Exactly. So they finally granted me like 10 minutes in the hallway in 97. And I said, look, I said, here's a plan for how you can run in the primary. Here it is, a written version of it. I'll volunteer for free. Let's travel the country and go do this. And he took it, called me two months later, agreed to it. And that's how I became close to, to John. And, um, and that was, a, that was a great, fun campaign. Did uh, you presume at the time that George W. Bush, your governor— was uh, going to run for president? We had heard rumors of that, and quite frankly, having known George, this is, having known George a long time, I couldn't imagine that. 
to be honest with you. Um, um, but, you know, he had his team. Carl Rove was his strategist. And you guys are sort of... Well, we had a, you know, we're not... We're frenemies, I guess is a way to put that. Mm-hmm. A kind way to put it. Um, any event, I, I didn't think that George ultimately would run. Uh, was wrong about that. But um, he, Governor Bush did call me... Hmm, in 99 and asked me while I was working for John McCain. And I told him I thought that Senator McCain would make a great president. had nothing to do with with, with George. Um, but that was a tough race, good race, fun Well, race. Uh, I mean, you, you're, you're minimizing it. It was yeah. like it was an incredible race because yeah. uh, McCain sort of upended most of the rules of campaigning, uh, campaigned uh, uh, with the press literally sitting with the press the whole time. I mean, it's unthinkable It is today. unthinkable today, and it's a shame, actually. The Straight, the straight, straight Talk, Talk Express. Express was his bus. Yeah, which we dreamed up over a glass of bottle of Merlot one night about how to, what do we name this bus. Uh, you know, it happened by accident. I like to say that it was planned out, but um, we decided to do a bus tour in New Hampshire. We need to get some traction there, and we invited the press on, and... Um, because McCain, while he had low name ID nationally, 3%, because of who his father was, having been a prisoner of war, him coming back, he knew some of the big feet reporters, Johnny mm-hmm. Apple. He had great, great press relationships beyond what we had. And um, they wanted to ride with him. They wanted to be with him. Um, today, people would be pretty cynical about And he that. was also very quotable. He was very quotable. He was very quick. He's a very smart man. Um, and so we turned that into a 14 hour roving press conference, basically like we were being outspent six to 10 to one. So it was our way to compete. And the Bush campaign decided to put George in a bubble, um, which is the worst thing they could do. I don't know that they didn't have confidence in him or they did something just totally opposite of what we were doing. Um, but, uh, you know, we were able to take New Hampshire and, and win by 19 points. And at one point, we dropped yeah. 66 to 3. So, you know, you had to feel good about something like that. Yeah, well, I mean, and uh, I remember it very, very well because uh, there was a sense that Bush was on the ropes. And um, and then came the South Carolina primary. I always said this was like um, – the biggest invasion from the North since the Civil War, uh, with the kind of K Street emptied out. Yeah. And uh, McCain was seen as a kind of a threatening figure by some of the institutional forces in Washington. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> they were so afraid of McCain-Feingold, as you remember. That was yeah, one of the campaign finance campaign reform. finance reform. And so we had every special interest entity spending money against us, tobacco, um, religious leaders, quote unquote, like Jerry Falwell and Robert Robertson, whatever, spending money against us. I think in South Carolina we were outspent thirty six to six, thirty six million to six million. On the night of the New Hampshire, on the afternoon of the New Hampshire primary, Tim Russert gave us the exit polls, and so we went up to tell John the outcome, and he said, "Great." What's going to happen next? And we said, both Salter and I, in unison, said the piano is going to fall. Mark Salter's John McCain's longtime yeah, alter, alter ego. ego. Yes, yeah. great guy. Uh, so we get to South Carolina, and it's, uh, you know, you grew up in Texas. You're in a tough campaign. 
you learn, you know, you learn to, to give and to take, and you have to grow a thick skin. Um, but what we endured and what he and his family endured is something that really seared me, quite frankly. Um, the nasty, the scale of the nastiness, the personal. Uh, yeah, intimations material. about Ill- illegitimate, I don't want to say illegitimate, but, but children. No, out of no I'll just say that they, the phone calls were made and leaflets passed out that he had a daughter uh, with a hooker from the Philippines, and yet they have a daughter with dark skin that they had adopted from Bangladesh who was with us on the campaign trail. And so they would use that as evidence of the daughter that, that he had from that mm-hmm. liaison. And um, you had the battle with the Confederate flag going on at the same time. It was a really toxic stew. He took a position against? He took a position against, right. which he regretted and came back later and apologized for. Um, against taking the flag he down. He did. He did. He took a political position, which we recommended that he do quite frankly it was the wrong thing to do he went back and apologized we felt like we had too much going on with our everything else to take that on as well yeah it's a tough one because the thing he was marketing was this candor this willingness to tell like it is the straight talk and that seemed like a um that seemed like a a a very political position it is it is it was it was a political position and he uh i remember the day bob schieffer uh, interviewed him on Face the Nation, I believe. And um, John got up and made his statement. He looked like he was back in Hanoi. So he kind of gave it away as it was anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, we lost South Carolina. We won Michigan. But, you know, to beat Bush, we had to knock him out in three rounds, not win two of the first three. Did you know when you lost South Carolina that probably this the, the thing was lost? Probably, yeah, because mm-hmm. of a resource allocation. Now, mm-hmm. That night, I, I, I gathered our team and said, "We're going to, you know, we're going to go kick their ass in Michigan." And Michigan was a pretty tough race, but we won that fifty-five forty-five. But at that point, uh, John had decided he was going to live within McCain-Feingold rules, even though the other side was not. And so there was just no way that we could live off of hard dollars while the Bush campaign was living off anything that they could get. And um, so it dragged on until middle of April, but it was it was done for. And when McCain came back, what did, what did you do in the interim between 2000 and 2008? Just worked your business? I uh, worked my business. Um, uh, he decided to go back in the Senate, though, and he wanted to pass the legislation that he cared about. So I stayed on with his PAC and led the effort on McCain-Feingold, which we Passed. Which we passed. We had to get a discharge petition in the House, and you know how hard that is. Mm-hmm. We had to get signatures to get something to the floor. But we got that passed, and with enough public support, we had town hall meetings around the country, forced the president to sign it, which he did in the middle of the night. Um, and he worked on Patients' Bill of Rights, which was passed through the Senate, et cetera. So worked had, with Ted Kennedy quite a bit. Worked with him on uh, immigration reform. He did. Well, that was that. later. He did work with Senator Kennedy on a whole host of issues, mm-hmm. though. He came back. At the time, he was the most popular political figure in the country. And up until 9-11, there was talk about whether or not he could run against the president of primary because, you know, on September 10th, President Bush's approval rating was low 30s. Right. Um, 9-11 changed all that, as it should have. Um, and um, um, it was a pretty tough time, though. The Bush, the Bush White House leaned on my clients, called my clients, told them they couldn't use me. So I briefly switched parties, and um, because we had worked with 
uh, Dick Eppard and others. And I became close with Dick. But at the same time, I came down with leukemia. Mm. And so I was in and out of treatment for the next three years, basically. Um, and then by the time you get to past the, <clears throat> past the 2004 convention, it looked like John could run again. So I resumed activity running that effort. Before you get to that, and I want to talk to you about that, um, you've been pretty candid about uh, not just the challenges of, uh, not just your political challenges, not just the challenge of dealing with leukemia, but the toll that um, that politics took on your personal life yeah. and your family. And I only raise that because I identify with it, mm-hmm. and I don't think people realize how... Uh, seductive this life is and how exacting it is. And so I wanted to ask you about that. Well, it's a touchy subject because I look back now and speak for myself. You put things as a priority at the moment of your life that with history and reflection would not be the most important. I have a fantastic daughter who's 22 Syracuse graduate in Los Angeles making her own way and I didn't give her the time that she needed now we're closer today but I didn't give her that time and uh, my first wife passed away with multiple sclerosis so it was it, it was a, it was tough you know and, and and in hindsight and I tell this to young people who get involved in politics now don't make gods of the people you work for don't put people on pedestals give it your all but make sure you prioritize what's important. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with John Weaver. Just to pick up on on your point, uh, you know, my I, I wrote a book a couple of years ago about my life in politics, and I talked about this. That you know, I think of, I'm embarrassed about the sacrifices yeah. that I asked my 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 wife to make my children to make and at the time you think well this is really important you know and we it, it requires these sacrifices and um and that that was a mistake and i think you're right to impart that advice to young people going into uh this work is to maintain a sense of balance and you know um family is forever family know? is forever it's even worse now though because at the time well, we were in tough races like South Carolina. And yeah. Took it personally, and people would say bad things about you. Nothing like what's being said now on social media. And that damage to families in the, in politics is very corrosive. Yeah. And it, it keeps people away. You know, I've gotten death threats. I don't take them seriously. My family takes them seriously because these are cowards who live, you know, in a basement or something. But... Um, it's 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 not a it's not a good place now. You um, you worked with McCain in in 2007 toward the 2008 race. Um, McCain, uh, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that he made some decisions along the way as to what he would have to do in order to become the Republican nominee because he rattled the cage of the Republican establishment uh, and done it with some glee mm-hmm. uh over time but um it seemed like he made sort of his peace with president bush and the bush political operation he had been critical of the tax cuts that bush passed in the midst of the war 
uh, and uh, had taken some other positions that were antithetical to the administration. And he, he moved. It seemed like he moved and made his accommodation with the administration uh, in order to um, smooth the way uh, for his, his nomination. Is that a fair? I, I think it's, to some degree it's fair. I mean, we started that in 2004. You looked at the landscape, and he, the president was having a very difficult time, as you may remember. And there was talk about dumping uh, Cheney from the ticket, and Senator McCain's numbers were still high. I called, the, I called Mark McKinnon and said, it's crazy that McKinnon was now who you worked with uh, or worked against, worked against in, in 1984 now was, a, was now on the Republican right. side working as the chief uh, media guy for right. Bush. Right. So I called Mark and said, it's crazy to have John McCain on the sidelines when he can help you. And he arranged for Mark and Carl Rove and I, myself to have some coffee outside the White House where we cleared this up and, and got John on the road for the president. Um, and I think it made a big difference for him. Ultimately, um, he, he, you know, he did come around on the tax cuts, even though he had been critical of them before. But then going into 07, you have to remember that he was for the surge when it was not mm-hmm. very popular. Yes. Okay. So that was hurting us with independent voters. And he was for, he was the lead author of McCain-Kennedy immigration reform. Yes. Uh, twice. One time we passed it out of the Senate. Second time was a, we failed which was a scourge with base voters and uh, radio talk show hosts. So, so we were getting killed on both sides. We were losing independent support, and then we were being hurt among with our base. And for the nominal front runner, that was a very difficult place to be. So in his mind, I don't know that he saw that he was taking the accommodating route because fighting mm-hmm. for the surge against Rumsfeld at the time and then fighting for uh, immigration reform against the base of our party – he, he thought he was like taking on a lot of water, and he was. Yeah. No. I listen. I nav- navigate even yeah. then navigating your way through the Republican uh, labyrinth is right. is, is, it's is a is, trick. Is, is not easy. Um, you didn't finish the campaign with him. What, what happened there? It was. Um, it was a thirteen-year marriage that was time hmm. to come to an end. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, we had people on the campaign team. Uh, the senator would come to me and goes, why are these three people always calling me, criticizing what's going on? It, does that represent a split in the, in the campaign? And I would say, if you have 97 people here and three people here, why are you representing that as a split? Many of the people who ultimately ended up in and around Donald Trump were involved in that. And I would say that the senator... The senator just felt like he needed to make a change. The, and and I, I just want to – look, it was difficult. He asked me to stay on. We had a totally different view of the, the, where to take the campaign. Terry Nelson and I wanted to break from the White House and start talking about the economy in a way that was different than what the Bush White House was talking about. Others wanted to go in a way that was more in tune with President Bush. It was – a basic disagreement and once he made that decision that's it it's his campaign it's um i you know i've been in in these positions uh i'd say two things one is it's the fact that you um 
that you lasted for 13 years is kind of remarkable because my experience has been that when you go through a losing campaign with a candidate, um, oftentimes that's the end of the relationship, even if you had a great relationship mm. and even if you did a splendid job because, um, you know, the 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 notion is, well, we're, this is a new deal, we need a new team, and so on. So that that becomes difficult. But it's hard, uh, I guess emotionally it's hard to detach yourself when you've poured yourself into something like that. Well, it is. It was hard to watch because, look, there are two John McCain's, like there are two David Axelrod, there's two John Weavers. There's a big there's a big one. We want to live up here. Yeah. Sometimes we live here. Sometimes we live in the basement. We don't want to live in the basement, do we? But sometimes that happens. Look, I think the John McCain of two thousand, the big John McCain, the John McCain who might not have selected Sarah Palin, might have given Barack Obama a better run for his money. Yeah. The atmospherics, as you pointed out, were not yeah. great with the Bush in no. the twenties. No. For any Republican no. candidate. And then you had the crash of And then crash and then you had Governor Palin as a running mate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think you could have made it more competitive. And I think everyone associated with the campaign would have felt better about themselves if you run a big campaign. The, be- the way to beat Barack Obama is to be bigger than him, not to be smaller. You hooked up in 2012 with, uh, with John Huntsman. So you continued to <laughs> seek out these sort of maverick candidates. Um, what, what changed in the Republican Party between... Uh, uh, well, particularly between 2008 and 2012, that made it difficult for a huntsman to find space. Well, um, you know, you, you would... Leaving aside his own liability or deficiencies as yeah. a candidate. No, no, look, I think Romney pretty much occupied a lot of that same space in the primary, quite frankly, uh, because the Romney of 2008, where he had run hard to the right against McCain in the primary. He had moved more center-right, preparing for the 2012 battle. Now, he gave away some things that he didn't need to do, particularly on immigration. But he occupied that space. Um, You know, for someone like John Huntsman, I think it it takes more ramp space than he had, quite frankly, to do this. Um, It wasn't a particularly strong field in 12, as I recall. Uh, But Romney pretty much occupied that space. And then this year, uh, you were with uh, Governor Kasich. Now, I wish you'd clear something up. There was some reporting that you had uh, first approached Trump or that you talked to Trump. No, that never happened. I've never spoken to anybody with Donald Trump's campaign, ever. Um, so you hooked up with Kasich. Why? I looked at the field, um, and I thought, you know, here was a guy who, in a time of economic anxiety because of his background— connect with people he was the perfect candidate to win in new hampshire do well in new hampshire he could govern because there were there's a, a large independent contingent in the new well there's a large independent but there's also you know uh the the voters up there take it very seriously and john Kasich is a guy who if you get to know him very well wears well um but david i'm at a place in my life and maybe you are too that you want to work for people that you believe in and that can win a general election, but can also govern. I, I've stopped now working for people because I need the money or any of those other kind of reasons. I, I have that luxury now. So I'm working for people that I could vote for. Yeah. So I look in John Kasich. He's a guy, and now I've gotten to know him extremely well. He's a guy who not only could win a general election, he could unite disparate parts of the country, and he could govern in a way that would make people proud. So here's the paradox right now. You, you, you say he could win a general election. And 
I think most people from most observers, myself included, believe that he was a, would be a formidable general election candidate. The thing I never figured out was how he gets he gets nominated in the right. Republican Party as it's constituted now, because he even though the John Kasich of the earlier days was viewed as kind of a conservative uh, maverick uh, on the you know was now viewed as a center right guy because he took Medicaid money for example mm-hmm. on uh, from Obamacare and, and a series of he. he took a more uh, uh, open, uh, uh, outstretched hand view on immigration and uh, a whole bunch of things that mark, marked him as uh, a moderate in a party that didn't seem very moderate. Yeah. Well, again, it gets, it gets back to who's making the definitions. I, I know he would say, and I would say, he is a conservative because he takes problems and he solves them as opposed to putting your head in the sand and having ideological tests that don't move, doesn't move the ball forward. Look, the, our path was pretty straightforward. We had to do well in New Hampshire. We had to do well in, in, in South Carolina and Michigan. We did well in New Hampshire. Now, what we didn't bargain for, and, and no one bargain for this was that Donald Trump would actually run, that he would have this bargain with the cable networks and have $2 billion in free coverage and a second, a strong second place finish coming from 13th place would get no coverage. That's not what's happened historically. In a state like New Let me ask you about this. This I, I understand the point you're making. There have been studies that said he got two billion dollars in free coverage, and there was, uh, you know, wall to wall coverage of Donald Trump. It's also true that Donald Trump made himself available twenty four seven. The calling into shows, appearing uh, everywhere. Um, did he? Is that something only Donald Trump no, could have, no, have done? Well, it's 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 not that other campaigns did the same thing. And they wouldn't take people on the air. Now, there's some revisionism going on among some of our friends in the media about how tough they were on Donald Trump in the primary, uh, people that I have a lot of respect for. And that's just not quite true. Uh, they wouldn't allow anybody else to call in on their Sunday shows or their, or their morning shows. And they certainly didn't carry other candidates' rallies live for hours. This didn't happen. They wouldn't do it. And it wasn't because Trump was in the lead at the time. When he got in, he was at 12. Then they started covering. I mean, what we live in now and can't do anything about it is some of the decision makers in the media make more money when the ratings go up. Maybe there's nothing wrong with that. That's not the way it used to be. That's the way it is today. I'm not whining about it. doesn't mean it's rigged. It is what it is. Um, but he also, you know, Trump went out and won the primary. Nobody's saying he didn't win it um you know you know it's funny on this uh i always believed that television ads meant very little after labor day uh because the coverage of candidates was so intense that people were going to resolve whatever issues they had based on what they saw of the candidates in the day-to-day coverage less than (laughs) less than the ads um, but he's, he kind of advanced that whole schedule. He was getting general election-level coverage even as a primary candidate. He was. It's really breathtaking. Now, we went on TV early for Kasich, and we went on TV in July and August in New Hampshire. And as I told him, we do that. We're going to be in the teens by Labor Day, and you'll be treated differently. 
and and we ran in the clear. Nobody else went on the air. We got in the teens, and he was treated differently. And I'm glad we did because television does move, as you, as you know better than anybody, can move numbers when you're not fighting the clutter of post-Labor Day earned media. Um, but sure, I mean, Trump got tremendous coverage. Is it a fair, unfair? It was the way it was. When did you... Uh when did you kind of see the tsunami coming? When when did was it apparent to you that Trump was uh, was a guy who could become a, a runaway freight train? It, it was probably November, December. You know, we went after him of first. 2015. Of 2015. We went after him first. We also understood and planned that we could get to a contested convention. We could beat him there. Um, and we were on track to do that. There was a lot of people criticizing, why are you still in the race? But the thought was... You know, the race is extended until there's a nominee, not just because the primary season or the caucus season, until you have actual delegates voting for the nominee. Um, And it was also clear that as long as the field was, you know, 12 people, eight people, six people, that he was going to get his 30 to 40 percent of the vote in every caucus or primary. He he had his floor. So we had to narrow the field. Um, And we thought, quite frankly, that we had him in a situation because he refused to st- start debating with us near the end of the primary when it narrowed down to three people, that if we could get Cruz out of the race, which Cruz agreed to to, uh, to the deal about Indiana, being the campaign in Indiana exchange that we would take Oregon and Washington, et cetera, uh, that we could get Donald Trump one-on-one. Now, the odds are that we might not win, but we could have forced a contested convention. What is it? Um, what describe to me the base that has that is now the Trump base? I kind of, you know, people treat it as if it is a um, a new phenomenon. It seems to me we saw some of those crowds in two thousand and eight at Palin rallies. We saw them in that McCain event where he challenged the woman up in Minnesota late in the campaign. Who- well, you know, we've seen, the, we've seen this throughout American history when there's economic anxiety. George Wallace drew crowds like this, okay? It wasn't just economic anxiety. It was it, people feel lost, you mm-hmm. know, with themselves and where they fit into the world. And then when you have good demagogues who play onto that, it's easy for them to, to be motivated. And we know who they are. You know, they... And unfortunately, they've been taken advantage of. Most of them are, are white, high school educated men in our party that feel as if the country's moved in a direction they're not comfortable with. They're unhappy or uneasy about their place in the world as globalization has taken effect. And that, technology. And technology. Um, you know, it, it fits into what we already know about the growing gaps between the haves and the have nots. People that don't have access to education, they don't have the same access to their government. It follows w- along with um, becoming more cynical about all the things that they used to believe in, whether it was their church or their bank or their government or what have you. They've been disappointed every step of the way. And then you have a party who's misled them for the last 20 years about the things that they're going to change in Washington with no intention of changing them and knowing that they can't change them. And so it all boiled up into kind of a cynical stew. I'd say that represents about 25% of our party. And, um, you know, he's getting the vote he's getting on top of that are loyal Republicans, people who just can't make themselves be for Secretary Clinton or can't see another route, quite frankly. 
but it's about 25% of our party and it's it's a significant part. Uh, where do you where do you see this race now the in the in the closing uh, days of the race? Yeah. Um, well, it, it it certainly appears from everything that that I'm reading and hearing and seeing that she has a significant national um, lead. Um, you and I care more about electoral votes, and I think she's going to be... And some- the, you, I, and the Constitution. Yes, thank you. <laughs> um, and I think she's going to be somewhere north of 340 electoral votes. Which would be a, an electoral landslide. In, in, the, in, the, in the world that we live in today, yes, I think so. I think she'll win Florida, North Carolina, Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, Arizona, Colorado, um, he won't. I don't know about Utah, but I think Trump could finish third in Utah. Because Evan McMullen, an independent candidate with ties, who who is Mormon, who's Mormon, ties to LDS community, right. could finish first or second. Yeah, yeah. Um, what does that? Well, well before I leave the, the your sort of uh, survey of the states, talk about Texas because there have been some polls lately that suggest. Texas is close, which has been kind of stunning because it's been such a solid mm-hmm. bastion for the Republican Party for a long time. Well, the Hispanic population and the Asian population, along with the normal demographic changes that we're seeing with younger voters, et cetera, catching up in Texas. Now, Romney won by 16, McCain by 12, so you would think, well, this is out of reach. Um, the public polling the last two weeks have had her, I think, on average behind by three points. The Clintons have a long fascination with Texas because they both worked for George McGovern in Texas mm-hmm. in 72. And having been governor of Arkansas, they have a lot of you know ties there from their days in Little Rock. I don't believe it, but it wouldn't shock me if he lost because I, I don't think he's finished trying to boil our base down. He has another two weeks to see if he can't quite get the scientific project to its <laughs> full completion. You give him a lot of credit there. <laughs> We're going to take another uh, short break. We'll be back with John Weaver. So let's assume that you're right and that the uh, uh, and that Hillary Clinton wins a substantial victory uh, on November 8th. Uh, where does that leave the Republican Party? And, um, and what does it mean in terms of, of, of governance for the next four years? Well, let me take the governance part first. Um, because while it's impossible to see how well it's going to go, it's the easier of the two questions. Uh, I believe she's going to win an electoral landslide and be the most unpopular president-elect in our nation's history, which is quite the paradox. And unfortunately, instead of seeing this as an opportunity for the Republicans to do a little self-introspection, a chance to look beyond ourselves and to play and to rise to the moment, which would help us grow nationally, the instinct will be to throw landmines, not not to govern, and to cause problems above and beyond being just the normal loyal opposition ideologically. Isn't this, John, because this may segue into the second part of my question, isn't part of the reason that that may happen is that, uh, that right now, uh, and we've seen it for the last eight years, the thing that held Republicans together was not some unified vision of how to move forward, but anti-Obamaism. And all of the factions could agree on that. Uh, and presumably, they, many, many of them will agree on anti-Clintonism, which is easier than figuring out 
sort of who you are as a party. Right. No, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, we have been devoid of ideas really since the Reagan administration as a party. That's a long time. And we've been running on Reaganism since then um, and not applying conservative principles to the issues and concerns that people care about, whether it's student debt or climate change or any number of issues. Well, climate change is a, he, there's a, no pun intended, a heated debate within your party as to how how valid a threat it really is. Th- that is, absolutely. So, so to your point, yes, it's going to be easy to do that. Now, Secretary Clinton, you know, they, they had a view of her similar when she was elected to the U.S. Senate, and she surprised people by her ability to work across the aisle, by her willingness to roll up her sleeves and get things done. And you and I were talking earlier, what fits within her wheelhouse is not being the eloquent visionary, but being the apparatchik that gets things right, she's done. Pra- pragmatic. Pragmatic. And I suspect, certainly don't know this, that she will put Republicans in a box because she'll move to the center and find some issues that will that you would think that they would work with her on. My, my guess is that most of them won't, and that it caused problem. Back to our party, we're in an existential crisis in our party. Imagine if Joe McCarthy was the nominee of our party in 1952. Okay, that's that's what we're dealing with. But instead of, you know, obviously Joe Stalin wouldn't be conducting himself the same way Vladimir Putin is. But um, that, that's where we are as a party. And the damage done demographically and to our long-term chances, not just on whether we can win national elections and be a governing party, but how we conduct ourselves as a party and how we can appeal to people and what we stand for as people, that's the crisis that we're in. If we can fix those, elections will come later. The, um, we, we were talking um, earlier about the dilemma of Paul Ryan, who uh, obviously he's, he's charted some, uh, a different course than Trump, and he's challenged Trump at times on various things Trump said. He's now announced to his caucus, or he's uh, some weeks ago announced to his caucus that he wouldn't be campaigning for or with Trump, that he was concentrating on the House races. That was met with some disgruntlement among some members of his caucus. And he's likely to lose a bunch of allies in this election because the most vulnerable Republicans happen to be more of the center-right suburban Republicans who could get swept up in uh, in a Clinton victory. Where does that leave Paul uh, Paul Ryan? Well, he has the worst job in the world. There's no doubt about it. And it's going to be much tougher post-election. One, I don't think Trump's going to go quietly into the night. Why would we believe that? And, and secondly, as you said, he, the the base within the House, the caucus, the conference, was going to be very difficult for Paul. Um, at the end of the day, Paul, my advice to Paul, if you ask me, would be to thine own self be true. And uh, hopefully he does that because that's better for the party and better for himself. Uh, but I don't know how he's going to manage that that idiom while staying a speaker. Yeah. So do you, could you foresee a set of circumstances where he doesn't stand for a speaker? I could see I could see that. It would not be good for the party because you look at what's behind him. It's not it's not healthy. Uh, but I could certainly see that. There was a story today, and hopefully it's not true, that the Trump forces, the troika around Trump, might ask the House not to ratify the results of the election. There's some— uh, Which it would be— Insane. 
Um, if if Ryan chooses not to run for speaker, would that be a signal to you that he is seriously considering running sure, for president? Of course. of course. Speaking of running for president, how about your guy? Uh, you know, uh, J- James Carville, who the aforementioned Carville once said that running for president is like having sex. You don't just do it once. Uh, do you think that he... Um, He's, this was actually his third. He did look at the presidency once before uh, this last time. Do you see him leading the sort of movement to uh, uh, rehabilitate the Republican Party after a defeat? Yeah. Well, as you know, David, you can't make a plan about running for president this far out. And it would be foolhardy to do so. And and certainly the governor's not not done so. Now, he has signaled and and I expect to see him put both feet into this fight about the heart and soul of the party, which will not be for the faint of heart. I do expect to see him do that. He's going to work his tail off to help the president pass TPP and the lame duck if if we can get it up. Um, and he has two more years as governor, and he intends to be as innovative and inclusive and hopefully as successful in his last two years as he, as he has been in his first six those are things that are on his agenda right now. Um, could you see? Could you see another campaign? Well, I could see it, but that's what I get paid to do. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, I mean the people around him want him to run again. And you know, our party, as you've seen, we're devoid of surrogates at the national level this cycle. Next to the speaker, he's been the guy most in demand to campaign around the country. He's cutting TV commercials today for ten U.S. Senate candidates. Um, so could I see him doing it again? Yes. Could he? I'm not sure he's there yet. The he is he's probably been as outspoken an opponent of Trump uh, since since Trump emerged as the nominee. He he the convention was in his home state in Cleveland. He refused to appear at the convention. He uh, has uh, thoroughly disavowed Trump. Trump has renounced the state chair in Ohio, which is seems uh, self-destructive given the fact that that's a pivotal state. But nonetheless, he's done that. Uh, do you expect that there that there will be um, an uh, an organized effort to punish Kasich if he ran again because he didn't embrace Trump? Well, the the chairman of the party uh, threatened as much. Um, You're about Ryan's previous. Yeah, maybe three weeks ago. And we had a pretty strong response back to him about that. I don't expect it to be at the organized national level. But look, as you know, if you stake out a position based on principle that runs against the thought within your party, you're going to pay a price for it. Does does Governor Kasich think that he's not going to pay a price for not attending the convention, for speaking out against both the tone and the policy Differences that he has with Donald Trump, sure he does, but he doesn't care about that. But as a practical matter, would that be an impediment toward his to his running again? No, I don't think so. And what about uh, you mentioned Priebus? Uh, do you think that uh, he will be the chair? There's going to be a, an election for chairman after this election. Uh, will he will he uh, be the chairman? Well, we don't know if he's going to run again. I would suspect and hope that he kind of intimated that he was planning. He to. did, he did. Um, but let's see what happens after yet another landslide loss. Would how much uh, responsibility do you think he would bear for that? 
Well, look, I mean, he, in our view at least, he greased the wheels for much of what happened with Trump. He was so concerned about Donald Trump running as an independent that he forced a pledge upon the rest of the field. He um, did not speak out against the tone and rhetoric and wrong-headed policies of Donald Trump throughout the primary system, and he called the race over in the fourth quarter. Uh, you know, I think the Bernie Sanders people may have complaints about Debbie Wasserman Schultz, but I don't recall her doing something like that. And how much of your time is, is going to be spent on this project, the Kasich project, the rehabilitation of the party uh, project in the next few years? Uh, probably half, at least. Mm-hmm. I mean, you care about the party. You've invested your whole life in politics and the party. We need a we need a viable two party system that is honorable. You know, I want to oppose Hillary Clinton's policies and the policies of the people that you've helped elect for the right reasons, and not because of um, what we read about on Twitter today and those things. Well, John uh, Weaver, it's it's been great to have you and both here at the IOP and. And on this podcast, I have a feeling that um, we'll be talking quite a bit in the next few years as, as all these things get sorted out. David, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.